we would consider at this time the, in the regular course of the preaching of the doctrines of the church and of the Reformed heritage, Lord's Day 11, in which is the subject of Jesus, the name Jesus, and its meaning, its significance as Savior. If you would like, I would turn you to page 18 in the back of the Psalter hymnal, the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11, where there are two questions and two answers, reminding ourselves that this is the way of instruction that was typical for the Reformation and post-Reformation creeds. They'd have catechisms. There's a Westminster Catechism, larger and smaller, and there's the Heidelberg Catechism, which are two catechisms of note, been used of God to teach the church and the church's children for hundreds and hundreds of years. The basic education we glean here, and then when this is expounded in the truths of God's word. Lord's Day 11, the question is asked, why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? And the answer is because he saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere. And the answer to those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? The answer is no. Although they boast of being his, his by their deeds, they deny the only Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. That's the brief uh, discussion that the Catechism leads us into in the Lord's Day 11. What we want to do at this time is preach the gospel of this Jesus, our Savior, our one and only, in fact, in the light of the Word of God, Acts chapter 4. Let's turn to that chapter in the sacred scripture in order to find the grounding for the church's instruction in the Savior, Jesus. <clears throat> The setting is well known to us who are familiar with the early chapters of Acts. Jesus is doing the acts of working through his apostles, having risen to the right hand of God and having poured out the Holy Spirit. We can read this. In fact, the title of the book could very well be The Acts of Jesus Through the Apostles, what he continued to do from heaven after he had done all his work on earth. And one of the acts of Jesus through the apostles that no one could deny is healing. When Peter and John went to the man who was lame for a long time and who sat at, in Jerusalem's gates and they healed him in the name of Jesus, everyone could guess not only but could be convicted and ought to have been that Jesus was working through these apostolic miracle workers. This was well received by many, not so by many more. In fact, the leaders of the Jews call Peter and John to account for this, and we'll read of this. This is this, the, uh, the context of Acts chapter 4. Let's read 
the first 13 verses. Now, as they spoke, Peter and John, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day. They put them in jail, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, they asked Peter and John, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And this is my text for this evening. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were struck by that, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus, and that we know made all the difference. Well, beloved, we have this central topic of Christian doctrine ahead of us, and we want to dive right into that and to consider that this Jesus and the no other name under heaven that's given is this Jesus Savior who is our one and only Savior. That's the first truths that we want to lay out, but also to apply this personally, I have as a first point, my one and only. And you must say, you ought to say, Jesus is mine too. You have to share him. He will share himself. He can be yours and he can be mine. He can be all of ours together. But the personal application of the word must be realized in our own hearts. And then we want to consider that he's worth contending for, which is exactly what happened here in the early church. Something that is vital for us to remember, the early church in its pristine days actually fought for something. And they fought for someone, namely Jesus and his crown rights to be the God of our salvation. And so they would die even for this, and they just stood, and the boldness was remarkable. And then finally, we want to consider that uh, the consequences that are here, and it's twofold as always in the gospel. There's some who get hardened in their rejection of the Savior and the gospel, and there's some like the church that is blessed beyond, beyond what their thoughts of any blessings could be, and that, may that be our blessing too. So we have, as the Catechism reminds us, in a very simple answer, Jesus being named Jesus, 
and that we know by the angel at his birth, because he shall save his people from their sin. And that's something to get a hold of once again. We, we know this, we say this all the time, but Jesus saves us from sin, our sins, all of our sins. Doesn't save us necessarily from wars, from diseases, from being too short, being too tall, being whatever we don't think we were made right to be. He saves us from our sins. And this is the gospel. It's called the good news. And he saves us completely from the effect of sin. So he saves us from its guilt. He saves us from its corruption, its total corruption, so that we are delivered from guilt and declared to be right with God. We're innocent. Other statements in the Catechism remind us that we are as innocent by the justifying work of God as if we had never sinned. Isn't that amazing? God himself looks at us and sees a perfectly righteous man because Jesus is the mediator and Jesus' own righteousness he sees and regards as ours. Beautiful. There's a salvation there that cannot be matched by any other estimation of any other salvation that you want from sin and from death, of course, from guilt and corruption and death, from the bad record and from the bad condition and from the bad consequence, separation from God now and forever. God delivers us by Jesus. This is amazing because we have to do with God and Sinners have to do with God, and the only way a sinner can have to do with God and come out on God's side is if God himself takes our side in Jesus and saves us from our sin. We are saved, then, from the greatest evil, and we are saved unto the greatest good. That's the positive side of the gospel. We're saved something from something, and we're saved unto something else. What's the greatest good? Well, I mentioned it. We're justified before God and declared to be right for the court of heaven. By the way, not just with City Hall. It's not just that the, the traffic police overlook our tickets and so on. It's God himself overlooking our sins justly because of the merits of Jesus. And we are, therefore, delivered as well because we're completely exonerated from guilt and we are made alive. This is the good. And the good is fellowship with God. The good is having God as our God completely and entirely, all of our life, as we'll see presently. The good is the best there can be. Because you, uh, God's people and all people were made to be with God. This is the Garden of Eden. This is what heaven, after the long and terrible history of sin and then of grace, is all about fellowship with God, the tabernacle of God being with men. So this good is something that's the greatest. And it's all through Jesus. The word through is very important. It's a mediatorial word. Through Jesus or in Jesus. Through him. Because of him. There is salvation, as Peter declares... In his name, nor is there salvation in any other than Jesus, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus, his name is presented here as that by which he goes. He is in his name the true God, which can be known. That's what a name is. Under him, therefore, known as Jesus, he is given to be the Savior. And look where you may, no other Savior, no other salvation. Jesus. Jesus appointed, Jesus crucified, Jesus risen. This is what Paul and, and, and uh, Peter and John were preaching. This is the truth which, uh, to which Peter was made aware at Pentecost in this overwhelming Pentecost way when the Spirit's poured out and floods his soul like a river and fills his mind as the flood light of the Word of God and the truth dawns upon him and gives him insight into the fulfillment of the Scriptures in Jesus of which he had been speaking all his, all his days on earth with them, but now... They are made cognizant of this by the wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Savior. He is by his death, by his resurrection, and also by his present life, as is evident by the fact that he is from heaven working miracles, saving sinners, even tonight, speaking the truth through his ordained under-shepherd here and elsewhere, so that there is this connection with heaven, this drawing unto heaven's fellowship and from sin and unto the greatest good, even now, because Jesus, he is the Savior always, always. We even have to understand that he was saving in the Old Testament before he came. He's the God of our salvation. And he is revealed as Jehovah God who saves and who only saves. Sozia is a striking passage to speak uh, rather cryptically, but truly, surely. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 7. And it speaks of Jesus or Jehovah as the only Savior. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will, will save them by the Lord their God. It will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle by horses or horsemen. There is an inkling of what Jesus would say in the New Testament when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, the only way. There's an inkling as well in Hosea and all in the prophets which says God alone is the Savior. When Paul through Timothy says that there's only one mediator between God and man and even the man Jesus Christ. Jesus, our complete Savior, and Jesus, our only Savior. The name, the revelation of the Savior, given among men under heaven. That's striking here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, under heaven. Reminds us that there's no place under heaven, but the person of Jesus where you will find salvation. Heavens declare the glory of God, to be sure. And uh, they're like sermons, are the heavens and the days and the nights and the stars and the planets and everything else. They're like sermons. And all the creation of God and all the little creatures and the birds that will soon come out, they're like, they're like sermon makers in their song, remind us of the song of the Lamb and so on. But in no person... 
In no name such as Jesus' name is there salvation. All these other revelations and lights, as edifying as they may be, aren't themselves the salvation of the people of God, just in that name, person, real God with us. Understand that? Understand, too, that it's all of grace. The name under heaven is given among men. It's given. That's a grace word. That's a grace life word. That's a grace redemption word, given, given. And indeed, he is, has to be. And don't we realize that it needs to be? Don't we realize that this name is given among men by which we must be saved, ought to be saved, need to be saved, such as the idea? As a desperate plight without the Savior and every aspect of his deliverance from and his deliverance unto, there's a desperate plight, I say, among men, and don't you realize it? Ecclesiastes describes for us the desperate plight of all of those under heaven and everything under heaven. Read the book and weep. Except you see the gospel that it leads you to. Under heaven, the wise man says, Solomon says, the wisest man says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is empty. All is full of men and boys and girls and and women and so on, having their way and their day and all of these things, but not doing anything but what is vain. And there's a time to live and there's a time to die and there's a time to do this and that. There's a time to work and a time to play. But under heaven, it's all vanity. Under the sun. You see, Ecclesiastes needs to be understood in the gospel sense, by those who've been taken beyond the sun, who know that the sun of righteousness has come down, who know there's a God in heaven who somehow has communicated his own life and his own presence to us from beyond the stars, beyond the vanity, beyond everything you can see, and then some. Not just at the edge of the universe, but in this reality who is God over the universe, distinct from the universe, there has come the God who visits us and who visits our little planet and who comes among men and who says, I have a plan, I'm executing it now, and here's my son, and I'm going to break him for your sake and that you might know how much I love you and care for you. Do you know how much God loves you and cares for you, beloved? And we say, Jesus is my only Savior. We're the kind, aren't we, that we look high and low for everything but God first. That's our problem. If you're anything like me, Talk to me if I'm wrong about this. But our first inclination is to grab a cup of coffee on Monday morning to wake up 
maybe to look on the internet at the news and so on before we pray and get all set and comfortable with ourselves and, and think about the day and pretty soon we find, you know, we really weren't thinking about our only Savior. And that there's something more than here below and punching a clock and earning a living and, and bringing up the kids. There's something more, even life with God, and there's something greater, some joy greater than filling our bellies. Do you know if you filled your belly with the whole world? If you gain the whole world, Jesus says, it'd still be a huge vacuum and emptiness of the soul. Amazing. Now, the world's pretty large, children. And there's a lot of good stuff in the world. We can use these things, these good gifts. But without God, it's all vanity and worse. We lose our souls. For we've invested in the world. We've had our bank accounts, our hedge funds, and we've done that religiously too. Here's a little Jesus there. Maybe on Sunday once, maybe twice. But then I'm going to the football game. And I, I need my daily dose of this show or this game. And with religion, we turn out to be, practically speaking, those who are more bored again than born again. That's our besetting problem, isn't it? And that's why when we're taught this once again in light of the catechism that Jesus is our Savior, and then we go back to the pristine days of the church when Jesus really meant something to people and they lived and died for him, that's a healthy thing, a healthy visit to the creeds, to the history, and hopefully to God himself in repentance and faith and say, Lord, I want to take you more seriously. I'm done searching high and low. I'm done leading the undisciplined life and filling my face with this and unable to run the race because I'm encumbered on every side with all of these cares and worries and things and loves and lusts that take the place of my Savior. Practically speaking, the first day of the first Answer, question and answer of the catechism becomes meaningless to us, doesn't it? What's your only comfort in life and death that you belong to Jesus? Yada, 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 right? We haven't lived that way. We live that he's one of our comforts. He's the ultimate comfort. And when I sin, I know I can just go to him. But what about when you live? While you live. While you think of relationships and think of work and think of church and, and think outside of the box of humanity's thoughts and philosophies and take the worldview of the Bible. So we have our struggles, don't we, and our demons. And we need to relate to that. If we're ever going to think of contending for Jesus against other people, look at your heart, your own worst enemy. It is yourself. It is myself for me. 
Somehow, by the grace of God, Peter and John were so filled with the Spirit, they were empty of selves. Peter's no pope here, but he's a humble man. He's a humble man preaching. Remember Peter the denier? Peter here is the declarer. Remember Peter who was stumbling at the cross of Jesus Christ now accuses the Pharisees of stumbling at the Savior and he would stumble no more. He would preach him and he would die for him. Might have been that Paul was in the audience. We don't know. It won't be long before Paul surfaces in the general persecution of the church. Imagine that, Peter preaching to Paul at first. Later, Paul will preach to Peter. But here he is. There's this amazing reaction, as is clear from the gospel, to the boldness of Peter and John to... In, to raise up a man in the name of Jesus whom they had just crucified and whom they claimed as was written, but the rest denied it. But Peter and John, it doesn't matter to them, they're, they're speaking anyway. And when the enemies come, enemies of the gospel and Peter and John, trying to squash the movement called Christianity, they throw Peter and John in the prison and they're going to talk with them. They're going to give them a talking to. And they're afraid to kill them, but certainly they're going to try to silence them. There are no less than 11 enemies, commentators have found, 11 groups of enemies and or individuals that are presented here in the first six verses of Acts 4. There's the priest, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection, they came upon them, greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them, and then there came to pass on the next day, verse 5, that rulers and elders and scribes, and as well as Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, they're all together. This is the gathering of what's called the Sanhedrin of 71 uh, leaders, we're told, and many from one family. There was a lot of nepotism going on here, a lot of favoring of families and uh, of, the, of the wealthy as well. But there's rulers, there's, there's power here, there's religious power, great enemies. Some have said, one especially waxes eloquent about the boldness of Peter here. And he says, this is the most remarkable display of courage that there ever has been. However you want to say that, if that's true or not, or even close to true, I think it is close to true. Here you have the beginning of the church and the beginning of the church's conflict. Here you have the warring of the seed of the woman and the warring of the seed of the devil. Here you have the devil trying to snip at the feet, not only, but take by the throat Peter and John and to nip in the bud this budding group and movement called people of God. Real people of God. The fake people of God are leading the way to say, enough of this. These people like their mentor, who's dead now, they thought. They're upsetting the apple cart. 
Children, that means they are teaching us a way that we're not used to. And they're upsetting us, and we're making a living over here, and they're going to ruin our being the, the mentors of Israel because they're saying we're all, we're all fakes and hypocrites. They were challenged. Just as later on Paul would challenge the Athenian businessmen because he denounced their great god Diana, these religious workers and fakes saw a threat to their business and trafficking in their legalism and earthly mindedness. So you have a great conflict here and great courage. In fact, I find Peter here filled with the Holy Ghost and saying what he does and mincing no words as an example to all of us of courage. For we have many enemies besides the eleven. In fact, we need to know that the whole world, in all of its individuals and groups and societies, if it be not for Jesus, is what? Against Jesus. Here you have the lines drawn. Jesus rose and he drew lines and he's drawing lines in these men who because they were Christian men were unanswerable because they were steeled by the rock and they were indwelt by the spirit of Jesus Christ they would not be denied and if people did they melted away in shame and they themselves were put to silence Now, those are men of God. Shall we be men and women of God? See, it all comes down to this. Jesus is either the only Savior or he's one of many. Or Jesus just saves And in part of our life, we can rely on him, but we need some other helps in other areas of life. And if that's the case, we're back into paganism. We need a God, maybe Poseidon, when we go on a journey across the pond. That's the Atlantic Ocean, folks. Go on a ship. We need Poseidon to keep us from the waves and the sharks and the whales and drowning. We need another God to find love. Let's call him Cupid. We need another God for the dentist, and another, and that's what those who believe in saints believe. We need this and that and the other thing because Jesus, maybe he's too busy. And maybe he's not enough, and maybe his blood isn't enough, and so on. And what I'm trying to say, beloved, is the God of Jesus and the Jesus who's of God is one of a kind. And he will not have any other gods besides him. There are no other gods besides him. And if we dare to say, you're God on Sunday, this God on Monday, and so on, and the God of freedom on Friday, God is angry. He is the God who, on the face of it, in all of the Holy Scripture, who's intolerant 
of any other gods in any other way to heaven. After all, he executed his son on the cross. And he would in that, and then raising him from the dead, exalt his son. And if anyone dares to deny the worth of the son's blood and the fact of the resurrection and the fact that he's coming again, God will be the most angry with that person who knows better and who should say, I am Jesus and Jesus is mine totally. And the church needs to contend for that. Ah, not in a feisty sort of way. You know, sometimes, beloved, I confess to you, I'm too feisty off the pulpit. Fighting old battles, fighting this or that, whatever it is, and you don't even know about some of these battles that I fight. You'll bear along with me over that, won't you? But I'm not going to give up. And you see, we need that. The elders, they need, if not a feisty and cantankerous pastor, someone who is fighting the good fight, leading the way. Here's Peter and John leading the way. There would be no church without such leaders. There would be no intolerance of sin and false doctrine without such leaders. There would no be love with the contending without such leaders who know that we need to be loved if we're going to contend for him and not for ourselves and our own clique and our own brand of saying things, our own way of saying things. We need to contend. So do you. We all do. And that is to take on the doctrine deniers, that is to say, yes, it's important that there's predestination in the church. It's important that Jesus saves and Jesus by his grace alone and that we deny that Jesus uh, is someone who can, or that people are some people who can choose for Jesus of their own as if salvation is dependent on the will of man or the working of man. Paul says it's not of him who wills or works, but of God who shows mercy. We have to preach that. This is the old Arminian error, which is alive and kicking today among most evangelicals, and especially in the billion-strong Roman Catholic Church. These old battles have to be brought out because Jesus, our complete and only Savior, is the one whose honor we seek so we contend for these things. We contend for the lifestyles that um, take over the church and are tolerated by the church and, and the same-sex marriages and all of these things which are ultimately a result of false doctrine. You know that, at least in evangelicalism, ignorance and false doctrine, they lead the way for loose living and fornication and all these kinds of things that are destroying the church little by little. But you'll be lied about if, the, if you do this, and if you 
pray that your pastor would lead the way in contending, you'll be lied about. Just like Peter was and John was. Here's the first lie. They perceived, Acts 4, 13, that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. And then they marveled at that. Now, I used to say, well, okay, that, that's accurate enough. They were just fishermen. And they, weren't, they didn't go to Yeshiva University. They didn't go to Harvard. They were those who were uneducated and unlearned. They even go to Calvin. Uneducated and untrained. Really, the Greek says about the untrained part, they were idiots. This was not your own, um, they're saying in a rather sophisticated way, they're just not so trained as us. They were just calling them idiots. Idiots. And that's a lie. They were wiser than those fools. They had been with Jesus and learned from Jesus the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. They were now filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised, with answers to these people that were not defending their own reputations, but Christ's reputations. And this, by the way, is the key to boldness on the pulpit. If a man comes here and he's about himself, he's going to shrivel away if anybody calls him out. If a man comes here and he's all about Jesus, look out. The gates of hell will not prevail against the man and his word, though he may be shot up and shot at. For we know the wisdom of Christ who preached Christ, and we have been with him, and we are empowered by him. Then <clears throat> they're saying that and realizing that they'd been with Jesus is really a half-truth, too. Disciples just, uh, just had not been with Jesus. They were with Jesus now. Jesus wasn't a past person. Jesus was alive. They were with Jesus. Jesus was with them would be, have been the better perception the discernment that's required and that only comes from faith. Amazing. And all who would contend earnestly for the faith have to have been with Jesus and still be with Jesus and know that Jesus is with them. The living reality, the God, the Savior of one's life. Must it be for a preacher who earnestly contends for the faith and for Christians who follow in the feet of Jesus along with the leaders. And the third thing they thought wrongly about them is that they didn't think that they would keep on doing this if they sorely threatened them. We're going to get them now. Like the Pope and his minions at the Diet of Worms, we're going to get Luther. We're going to scare him to death, that fat old monk. And Luther, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, here I stand in the word of God. That's what happened here. But they thought the threats would do it. We'll shut them up. They've been in the cooler for a, a night. That'll sober them up. Our presence here 
will sober them up, all the dignitaries. And then after the speech, they severely threaten them again. They exhort themselves to do this, and they call on them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, however, they don't back down, do they? They answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And even when they further threatened them, they kept on going, didn't they? And thus, the church. Because God worked in the leaders of the church to be men of Jesus, for whom Jesus is everything, and to live and die for him is everything, doesn't matter as long as the message gets out and Jesus is magnified. Final point is this. This only increases, the standing for Jesus only increases the antagonism. That's what happens wherever the gospel is truly preached. Increasing opposition. You see this in the rest of the book of Acts. There's this twofold consequence The negative is the unbelievers become more unbelieving and hardened unless God has has had plans for one here and there and saves that person. But primarily the reaction of the gospel that begins with antagonism continues in antagonism even in the church of Christ. Be careful lest you be found bucking against truth or maybe the leadership of the elders and their discipline. Careful, lest you go on and on in the habits of sin. Be careful, lest the gods that you've been playing around with truly become your gods. Lest the things that you've been trying to fill your life with and you've thought that they're going to save you and and you need the bottle and you need that or this or that person more than, than God. You need to get married or you can't be content. Beware of this. Lest you be hardened when the gospel is preached that Jesus is all you need and all you must want. The positive is, oh, the church took off. And it wasn't just about the numbers. 5,000 were added. But about, it's about this. They rejoiced and the people received... Uh, Peter and John, verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what he'd done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And when they were let go, they came to the other people of the church, and the other people of the church, verse 23, and following, they became waxed eloquent about theology. They, they pronounced in In the name of all the company there, the godness of God, you are God, they said, with one accord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And by the mouth of your servant David, you said, why did the nations rage and the people blot vain things? And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They knew what was going on here. And the leaders led the way, and the people followed, and they were of one mind. This is the gospel. It's the gospel of peace. It's the gospel of war. Here's biblical war and peace. And 
They resolved that they were going to continue. They prayed. The whole place was shaken. There was an earthquake and go on and on in about 100 sermons on this early church. One thing to end with about the church, great grace was upon them all, verse 33. After the apostles had given witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, great grace was upon them all. Upon you all, grace for your life, for when you're needing a shepherd to eat in his pasture and to open the word, when you're needing an advocate to pray in Jesus' name to be on your side, when you're needing a friend to find in Jesus your best friend, when you're needing a savior from your ugly sins to trust in him, Jesus is that kind of savior, our all in all, and he will never let you down. Live for him, contend for him, go on and press on. May grace upon you all. Amen. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, our Savior. And we pray, Father, with tears, that you would forgive our sins. When it's not been so real, we haven't been so consistent. Doesn't matter how old we are, young, what our past has been, what our present is now. We think our future shall be You are a God. And we come to you as the God who forgives, and we believe that, Lord. Have mercy upon us and give us to rise up from this place very happy. For you've met with us here. We've been toward heaven. We've been taken toward heaven. This Lord's day is truly blessed. It will be for the beginning, the rest of the beginning of our eternal life. Resolutions made and begun to be kept by your grace to be holy so that all who name the name of Jesus depart from iniquity and clothe themselves with the wonderful righteousness of Jesus. Bless every one here. You know the hearts. Whisper to us, Lord, the still small voice of the Spirit. Be powerful. Almighty powerful to turn us to you. In Jesus' name, amen.